From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV camper, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big howdy to all of you catching The Conspiracy Show on one of our affiliate stations, the podcast at TalkZone.com. Hi to all of you who take The Conspiracy Show with you on your mobile device. The app is amazing, and it's a a free download. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is here. It's uh, that time of the month for our Paranormal News Roundup, and uh, she'll be here for the full hour. Just a reminder, Albert, my story producer, not here tonight to run our live stream on, on YouTube. So again, no live stream on YouTube this week, but he'll be back next week along with our What's in the Box feature. Uh, Tom Warzeka and I believe uh, Derek Rassman, both of them, from Kohilo Wind Turbines uh, will be here to discuss their disruptive turbine technology uh, that's next week on The Conspiracy Show. Oh, and one more thing. I tweeted this out last week, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett. Send me your questions. Use the hashtag AMA Richard Serrett. AMA, ask me anything, Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, AMA Richard, uh, AMA Richard Serrett. And I'll answer your questions and post the video to YouTube next week. So again, use the hashtag AMA Richard Serrett. And uh, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. We've uh, set a target of 10,000 subs before the end of the year. That's not a lot, uh, really, but uh, I'm hoping you can help me put that over the top fairly quickly. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is an American writer on topics related to spirituality, the occult, and the paranormal. She's also a radio show host, a certified hypnotist, a board director of the National Museum of Mysteries and Research, Uh, and the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters, and a Lifetime Achievement Award winner from the Upper Peninsula Paranormal Research Society, Michigan. She has written more than 60, 60, that is, 60 books, including major encyclopedic works. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well, Richard. It's always a pleasure to be back with you. I've been out in California for a few weeks. Uh, down to Australia to talk at conferences. Um, it's been an exciting time here this winter, and I'm very glad to be missing the snow back in Connecticut. <laughs> I know, Hawaii, now you're on the West Coast. I would love to have your frequent flyer points. <laughs> they do come in handy <laughs> yes. for a great trip. You rack them up, that's for sure. How was Australia, by the way? Any interesting uh, investigations down under? I didn't get a chance to do investigations, but I did speak at two conferences back-to-back. One was an afterlife conference uh, on survival and death and dying, and the other was uh, a UFO conference called Close Encounters. And what I really liked about the second conference was that it devoted a great deal of attention to the experiencer end of things. Mm. Uh, in, in America, we have um, so much emphasis on old cases, nuts and bolts, um, conspiracy, uh, things that we we seem to go round and around on uh, when actually some of the most exciting developments are in the experiencer end of things. People are having contact experiences and how that's changing them. And uh, so it was refreshing to be at a conference where the focus was on the experiencer rather than on, um, you know, some case from the 1960s that's been talked about 
you know, over and over right. again. Right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I've noticed that with, uh, you know, the various UFO, um, conferences. It's, it's Roswell, uh, um, and maybe, you know, Rendlesham Forest and so forth. And, and, uh, but I think it's changing. I think we're starting to see some changes here. I think people are, we're talking more about abductees and, and, and things like that. Um, you know, the, the work that I've been doing with FREE, the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters, that has put a spotlight on the experiencer, too. And so as that data starts to filter into the UFO community, um, I'm, it's my personal hope that, that that will shift some interest into exploring more of those areas. Mm-hmm, indeed. Uh, I want to talk to you about a, uh, something you and I have talked about on the air before. We've dedicated whole shows to this, and that is uh, the phenomenon known as the doppelganger. But there's one aspect of, because there are different types of doppelgangers. Uh, I know you had a, um, an astral projection uh, experience where you 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 left the living room, went into the kitchen, you came back into the living room and found yourself asleep on the couch, and you couldn't get back into your body. That's one type, but there's, it was freaky. Yeah, there, but there's another type that has to do, and this often involves uh, sort of spiritually enlightened people. It's very prevalent in the history of the Catholic Church, Buddhist monks, for example, as well, and that has to do with bilocation. Tell me, tell me about that. Bilocation is where a person has the ability to be in two places at once, doing separate things. And people in both of those locations are convinced that they're dealing with the real person. Uh, the individual who is bilocating has, has the capability of carrying on conversations, doing physical things, having physical contact with people, and seeming to be uh, flesh and blood. And it does have a relationship to... Uh, a, what I would call a cousin phenomenon, the doppelganger, uh, which is a projection of your double. And sometimes it's hard to know where the line sh- can be drawn because in a lot of cases of, of the doppelgangers, um, this seems to be a double of a person that sometimes has an apparitional look or feel to it. It's very close to the individual, um, the, the living individual, and it doesn't have... Um, a lot of times the full capability of conversation and interacting. Um, and in these cases where uh, the person does, um, we find a lot of these cases in the saint literature and in the uh, esoteric literature. Uh, these are powers um, that are well known in yoga, for example, the ability to bilocate. And it seems that as human beings spiritualize their consciousness, they can acquire these superpowers, and bilocation is one of them. Uh, did you broach uh, bilocation in any of your encyclopedias on uh, the saints? Because this ability has been attributed to a number of uh, saints from as early as the 13th century. There was Saint Anthony of Padua, also known as the the Wonder Worker. Uh, is this an area that you've covered in your your work on saints? In the Encyclopedia of Saints, yes, I go into it quite a bit. And in fact, uh, we find bilocation to be such a common ability among the saints that it's almost considered to be one of one of the prerequisite prerequisites for sainthood. Uh, and I think this has to do, again, with the evolution of spiritual consciousness. Uh, the uh, literature of the saints has many examples of this. 
And um, one of the most recent, in fact, um, in modern day is uh, Padre Pio. And he was recently canonized in, uh, I think it was 2001, and uh, he was very well known for his ability to bilocate, where he could be, uh, for example, uh, praying or uh, doing something in a, a church or a monastery or with other people, and in a distant location, be doing something else, ministering to people who are in need, uh, people who are sick. And that seems to be um, one of the factors involved with the Western saints, that there's some sort of need that calls them out. Now, uh, in yoga, this is a power called, it's one of the cities, and it's related to the um, evolution of the kundalini energy in people, which is a psycho-spiritual energy that as you advance uh, in on your spiritual path, this energy becomes more prominent throughout the body. It rises up the spinal cord, and it activates the chakra points. Uh, and as you become more spiritualized, then you acquire bilocation, clairvoyance, telepathy, uh, rapid transport or teleportation, the ability to manifest ports, uh, the ability to be invisible, um, things that uh, people think would be quite wonderful uh, to be able to do. But in enlightenment, uh, they're almost considered to be impediments to enlightenment because they can gratify the ego. And, um, of course, when uh, we see these uh, powers expressed in the Western saints, they have spent uh, their lifetimes devoted to spiritual practice, intense meditation, intense prayer, uh, devotion, uh, purifying themselves. And so these abilities then begin to manifest. And the true challenge is then to be able to use them uh, for the greater good rather than for selfish purpose. And how uh, how does this bilocation take place? Is it in fact a, um, a deliberate astral projection? It's very deliberate in cases with intensely spiritualized people. And Sai Baba, for example, is another modern example of that in the, on the eastern side of things, um, that uh, you can do this at will. And you perceive a need in a distant location or you feel yourself being called. And this was the case with Padre Pio, is that he would feel himself called out by, his, by people who were devoted to him and praying intensely to him for some kind of help. Uh, and they have the ability then to literally be in two places at once. Um, and sometimes uh, it's a case of uh, they carry on as usual uh, in their uh, initial location and activity. Uh, nothing seems to be remiss. Or they may fall into a heavy trance. And uh, St. Martin de Porras was an example of that where he would go into deep trances uh, when he would be called out, uh, and so he would be almost inactive in one state and very active in the other. Um, whereas uh, in some cases, like Padre Pio, uh, there seemed to be no difference in the ability of the individual to be active in two locations at once. Hmm. So that's a little different from the doppelganger, right. where uh, people find themselves uh, spontaneously projecting um, a kind of ghostly double of themselves, and right. they may not even be aware of it. And that's what happened to you. 
Uh, we've talked about that before. Listen, uh, we've got to take a time out. I just wanted to throw in here, uh, because we've been talking about, you know, mystical people, spiritual people that can bilocate. There was actually a case, uh, where I, but I, I happened to, I think that this was more a case of sort of myth building, and that had to do with, um, former, uh, Soviet leader of Vladimir Lenin back in the 20s, who was said to have bilocated uh, he was seen by Kremlin guards uh, walking al- along, around the palace all alone, even though he had been months earlier totally incapacitated by a series of strokes. And, of course, this was corroborated by other witnesses, but uh, certainly nothing spiritual about Vladimir Lenin. I'm thinking maybe this was just a case of them trying to build up his uh, his legend. Uh, we'll, we'll take a time out, and when we come back, Rosemary, I want to talk to you about something very strange going on the Philippi- in the Philippines at karaoke bars uh, that involves the uh, the Frank Sinatra classic My Way uh, and a series of murders. We'll uh, do that and much more. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, the author of over 60 books involving the paranormal, supernatural, and uh, her website is visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com. Check out her online bookstore and you can peruse, as I say, over 60 titles. Very prolific. Uh, Rosemary, this is a strange one. Uh, Frank Sinatra, one of my favorite artists, I, I saw him in concert three times. And um, his song, My Way, which was written by a, Can- a Canadian, uh, the great Paul Anka, uh, there's this strange thing going on in the Philippines where this song, when it's sung in karaoke bars, has spawned a, a bunch of murders. Um, it's become this cultural ph- phenomenon where it's called the My Way killings. What do you know about this? It's happened too often to be just a fluke. And we've, we've had um, other examples in the past of uh, people claiming that the influence of certain bands, songs, or lyrics um, can influence people to do drastic things, even commit suicide, murder, um, go on rampages. And um, one wouldn't expect that, however, out of a Frank Sinatra song. This is, these are usually acquisition, uh, accusations that get leveled against rock bands. Sure, like Judas Priest. They were actually taken to court because some of their lyrics supposedly uh, influenced someone to, to commit suicide. And then, of course, there was Charlie Manson talking about Helter Skelter and how that uh, he, he believed there were secret messages in there just for him. And Led Zeppelin has been accused of the same. We had uh, the Blue Oyster Cult, uh, who was accused of uh, encouraging young people to commit suicide by trying to make it sound glamorous. But but here's a song that was sung by Frank Sinatra, and uh, it's about um, sort of uh, doing your own thing and following your own course and um, regardless of uh, other influences. And people have speculated that, uh, you know, why? Why would this song uh, make individuals go berserk and especially murder people who are singing this song? Right. Twelve times it's happened. Twelve murders in these karaoke bars. Well, you know, the argument's been made that maybe these people were singing it badly and other people got upset. But uh, that's almost a joke that you can't take seriously. So I think we have to look at the lyrics of the song. And is there something in the lyrics of the song that maybe trigger people 
who are in the right psychological state. And the, st- the song starts out about uh, the end is near and facing the final curtain. And uh, so it's about living a life that's full, uh, and no matter what came along, I did things my way. Uh, in other words, everybody else sort of be damned. Um, I, I did what I wanted. Um, Re- I had my own vision. Right. Regrets, and, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. And could that trigger something? Uh, let's mm-hmm. say if someone had repressed anger or they were depressed and they're in a bar and they're drinking, could that trigger uh, something? Uh, for them to act out some sort of internal rage. Interesting. Well, uh, it's only, as far as I know, happening in these karaoke bars. And karaoke is very popular, a very popular form of entertainment uh, in the Asian community, particularly in the Philippines, in Chinese communities, Japanese communities in, in North America. Karaoke is huge. Um, and in one case, Rosemary, it was the security guard at the karaoke bar who shot the singer. So there's no logical explanation for what's going on here. Uh, and my personal feeling is I, I have to go back on, it must be something in the lyrics that in the right circumstances um, triggers something in, in individuals. Uh, although why this would only happen in karaoke bars and not, for example, night, just general nightclubs, because this is a very popular song, uh, and unless it really does get down to how somebody is is um, you know portraying this music, hmm. yeah, it's, it's. I wonder if it's possible that uh, you know people talked about how there were certain triggers in the Catcher in the Rye book uh, in that Mel Gibson movie conspiracy theory. Uh, Mel Gibson, who became this unwitting assassin, uh, was reading Catcher in the Rye. Mark David Chapman, who killed John Lennon, immediately after doing the deed, he sat down on the curb uh, outside the Dakota and was thumbing through his copy of Catcher in the Rye. Do you, do you suppose it's possible that someone has, I don't know, these shooters were somehow uh, hypnotized and they were t- there's, there are trigger words in the song now that, that caused them to do this? It's an argument that's been made by critics of a lot of kinds of music that there are subliminal triggers in lyrics and uh, especially lyrics combined with sound that uh, can activate certain things in certain individuals. And I, I can't for the life of me think that this music, uh, these lyrics were composed with that in mind. Uh, and is this an accidental sort of programming? It doesn't seem to occur in other cultures. Hmm. And, uh, you know, yes, it's true. You know, I've been to Japan, and I know how popular those karaoke bars uh, are, and um, uh, there is a cultural difference there. But we don't find people at concerts or nightclubs where this popular song is is being sung over and over again doing the same thing. No, I mean, something peculiar to that environment. It's true. Uh, In fact, uh, President Trump and um, uh, Melania, that was their first dance at the inaugural ball. They danced uh, to to my way. Well, uh, it's gotten so bad that they're banning the song in, in a number of karaoke bars. So I guess if you find yourself in Manila and you have an urge to go and get up on stage and sing karaoke, a safe bet would be Bette Midler's The Rose. 
Well, definitely this sh- this song should be avoided. Absolutely. Uh, now, this is um, a fascinating story. Uh, it's called The Island in the Clouds, and um, it's called Mount Rory- Roraima. I guess it's this huge plateau in the rainforests of Venezuela, or a series of plateaus, and they rise more than 9,000 feet off the ground, and uh, from above, if you're flying over them, they, look, they literally look like islands in the sky. And uh, these Venezuelan plateaus, some have, su- has, have suggested that they could be the home to a lost world where dinosaurs exist. Maybe they were the inspiration for H.G. Wells' Lost World. Uh, I had never heard of the, this place before. What do you know? They're definitely spooky, and yes, uh, from the air, they do look like islands in the sky because the cloud cover is often just below the top of these uh, plateaus, obscuring the world below, making them look like they're floating in the sky. Now, uh, they've been explored for hundreds of years, a little bit. They, uh, they were first mentioned by Sir Walter Raleigh in 1595. Um, he was aware of them. Uh, the the natives of Venezuela uh, have been able to penetrate them, but Westerners, not so much. Most of them remain totally unexplored. And uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was fascinated by um, early accounts of uh, ascents to these plateaus for exploration, and that's what really inspired his novel, The Lost World. Right. It was I said H G. I said H G. Wells. You're right. It's Arthur Conan Doyle, of course. Uh, and dinosaurs and, um, you know, this prehistoric world that exists. Well, I think that uh, these plateaus are probably home to a lot of supernatural, spooky things. And, yes, they are home to um, very unique species because they've been isolated from the rest of the world. So uh, researchers are finding species of plants and animals and um, bird life that are unknown elsewhere. But according to what we know about them, uh, they were formed a little after the dinosaur era. So it's unlikely that uh, dinosaur bones are going to be found there. Uh, I think they missed the mark by about um, 5 to 50 million years, depending upon estimates as to uh, when dinosaurs first started appearing on the planet, they uh, if they were formed prior to the dinosaurs, they would have been so high up in elevation uh, that they already would have been isolated from that. But nonetheless, something that's been so isolated like that would, uh, to me, be full of something so primeval, um, so raw, that um, supernatural experiences there I think would be very intense. And would this literally be a land of the gods? I think so. That's definitely a, a place I'd like to visit. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you'd have to travel with an oxygen mask. That's It's so high up. But uh, imagine, 9,000 feet. I, yeah, I had no idea that this place even existed. We've got a few minutes here. We're going to head into a break shortly. I want to start uh, talking about these uh, phone booths in Japan, and uh, this is going to lead into a conversation we'll have in the next half hour. But after the earthquake and tsunami tore through Japan back in 2011, something like 16,000 people died. And during the natural disaster, uh, many communities, you know, still haven't haven't recovered. But one coastal Japanese town is dealing with its grief in a unique way. 
a white telephone booth with glass panels. The phone booth, which only has a disconnected rotary phone inside, a disconnected rotary phone, has become a popular destination for residents who are still dealing with grief. And uh, Rosemary, what can you tell me about this phone booth to the dead? This is an absolutely wonderful idea, and uh, I'm sure it's helped many, many people. But here's this uh, phone booth, which actually was put up before the tsunami. And it was it was resurrected, a white phone booth with a disconnected rotary phone in it. It was uh, put up before the tsunami by uh, a man who wanted some sort of way to try and communicate with um, his his own dead family members. It was a way of processing his own grief. And after the tsunami, it became a focal point for um, many other people who had uh, lost uh, so much in that tsunami. As you mentioned, 16,000 people died that they could come into this phone booth and pick up the receiver and ask to have a conversation with lost loved ones. And um, this is, a, um, well, it's a symbolic way of processing your grief. It gives you something to do. Um, I imagine that people are quite overcome with emotion uh, when they are in this booth feeling like they might be able to talk to the dead. But the question that I have is what paranormal conversations really do take place because I'll bet you there are quite a few people who go through this experience and have some sort of message from the dead whether they get it internally like through clairvoyance or an inner knowing or an actual voice that they think that they're hearing um, people may be able to have that experience as a result of uh, so much, um, you know, collected emotional energy going into this process. Well, I know you have documented uh, cases where people have, and, and I've, I've, I've done open line uh, phone-in shows on this as well, and people called in and, and talked about experiences where a phone has literally rung when they picked it up. Uh, they heard this crackly, crackling on the other end, and they heard the voice of a deceased loved one. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come back. That'll be the focus of our next half hour. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Telephone Conversations with the Dead. Stay with us right here, The Conspiracy Show. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, the author of over 60 books, and uh, the website is visionaryliving.com. She joins us once a month for our Paranormal News Roundup. Before the break, we were talking about this phone booth in Japan that overlooks the Pacific Ocean. Back in 2011, a horrific earthquake and tsunami killed 16,000 people, uh, which ended up being about, I think, 10% of the town's population. This is Atsuchi. So, sort of as a symbolic gesture, they put this phone booth there containing a, a disconnected rotary phone. So, those who had lost loved ones could go into the phone booth and sort of dial their dead relative or dead friend's phone number and, I guess, imagine a conversation that they would have liked to have had with this person. But as we mentioned, you have actually documented cases where people have claimed to have received telephone calls from the great beyond. Now, was this covered off in the book you co-authored with George Norrie, Conversations with the Dead? Yes, we did have a chapter on phone calls from the dead, and they go on all the time. This has been a well-documented phenomenon 
one of the earliest books that went into quite a bit of research on this was called, literally called Phone Calls from the Dead, and it was written by the late D. Scott Rogo and Raymond Bayless, two well-known paranormal investigators. This is research that many people like myself have continued. Now that we have cell phones, it happens over cell phones as well as regular telephones. And there are different patterns to this sort of experience. Usually the living person is the recipient of the call. And that's a little different from the um, Japanese phone where the living are making the call to the other side. But there do seem to be certain circumstances where people can have literally a phone call conversation with someone who has passed on from the other side. And the voice is often a little hard to understand. There's a lot of static on the line. The conversations are very short. Someone may call just to say, hi, I'm okay. Don't worry about me. Some of the calls are anniversary calls, like wedding anniversaries, birthdays, anniversary of a death. And there are some cases where phone calls have been made from the dead to the living where the living person didn't know that the other person had died yet. And uh, that's quite interesting because it becomes a farewell conversation. Now, in uh, talking to the dead, George Norrie and I go into a lot of commentary and speculation on what if we really could develop a phone that would reach into the afterlife. Personally, I believe that that technology will happen someday, that we will have a device that we will be able to use to specifically reach um, a particular person on the other side. In, in the case of the Japanese phone, people seem to use it for grief processing. And uh, so they pick up a phone and it's the act of, simulating a conversation with someone, maybe they pour out their grief, um, they hope that that person is all right, um, but I'm betting you that some people hear something back. Well, one of the things that I heard when I did an open line segment on this, and you were probably uh, my guest that night on, on the program, people will receive a phone call, and this was in the, in the age of a caller ID, and they would see they would they would see a number on the on the caller ID panel, uh, but it would be just kind of a mishmash of numbers and symbols. It didn't make any sense. Uh, and then, as you say, when they pick up, they hear this crackling and a distant voice. Um, in your experience, in your investigations, were these most often one-way conversations where the deceased would say a few words and hang up, or were there were there cases? Are there cases where a, a prolonged two-way conversation was happening. They were definitely two-way conversations. Um, they're, they're usually brief, and um, the person who is deceased will usually have a message that they want to get across, and they're very similar in that way to dream visits from the dead, where there's a compelling reason for uh, the dead person to reach the living person. Uh, but in these phone call uh, cases, uh, there have been um, cases on record where people have carried on conversations for uh, quite a while. Now, the longer ones are usually cases where the living person does not know that the other person has, uh, has died. Uh, when the phone call comes uh, and the, the person, the living person, the recipient knows that they're listening to the voice of someone who's passed over, 
there's an initial shock and surprise, uh, and uh, the exchange usually is very short. And then the voice fades away or the call ends. There have even been some interesting cases where um, some unknown operator, remember the days of long-distance operators? Oh, yes. Um, uh, some operator comes on and says the call has to be ended. Oh, okay. Let's, i got to jump in here. We're going to take a timeout. We'll come back, and uh, we'll pick up on this. Telephone calls from the dead, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and then uh, we'll get into George Van Tassel's Integratron, uh, this sort of time machine built in the uh, Mojave Desert. I know Rosemary was just there. We'll uh, We'll get an update on that as well. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and we're talking about telephone conversations with the dead. Uh, have there been cases where um, someone has received a voicemail message from a deceased person? Yes, there have been. And, uh, these, and now that we all are on cell phones, a lot of these cases do involve cell phones. There have been some cases, and uh, George and I have one of them in Talking to the Dead, where a man who was killed in a train accident uh, left a, voice, uh, a voicemail on someone's phone. And, uh, you know, these things are time-stamped. Uh, and it was determined that this man already had to have been dead when the voicemail uh, was left. So uh, this phenomenon does con- it, it, it seems to adapt itself to the technology. I think that we will, as, as I was saying a little earlier, we will have the technology that will be able to dial up the other side on demand someday and uh, be able to to maintain maintain our contact. Now, in Buddhist communities, maintaining a relationship with the dead is very important. And so they're naturally oriented toward ways that uh, continue to foster communication. And um, many people, for example, um, especially in Japan, they have home altars or shrines where um, the names of uh, dead family members and ancestors are inscribed. And they're considered to be literally homes for the ancestors. So um, the telephone to the dead, uh, I think, is a, a novel addition to that. Uh, and um, f- frankly, I would like to see more of this. I think it would be a great therapeutic tool. Sure. It, it's well, like, uh, you know, using black mirrors to contact the dead. If you had like a necromantium or psychomantium situation where somebody was in a darkened room with a phone that... Um, supposedly connected to the other side and you picked it up and started talking, um, you would probably have some profound experiences. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, that we'll have this technology um, one day. And wasn't this uh, a device that both Edison and Tesla, they were, they were rivals, of course, one developed AC current, the other DC, uh, but they were both working on a telephone uh, that could communicate with the afterlife, were they not? Well, Edison certainly expressed an interest in that, and just how far he got on it, nobody really knows. Uh, he made numerous comments that uh, there technically could and should be such a device. 
Um, and some people feel that he was actually at work on such a device, but no plans have ever surfaced. Now, he was a meticulous uh, note maker. He scribbled notes and ideas on all kinds of things. He kept uh, lots of diaries. And, of course, the conspiracy theory is that um, after he died, uh, the plans for this alleged device were stolen um, and, uh, you know, never to surface again. It's really kind of up in the air whether or not he actually pursued uh, actual work on such a device as opposed to just talking about it theoretically. But he was interested. Hmm. Um, just one sort of final footnote, and then I want to move on to the Integratron. One of my favorite uh, writers is Dean Kuntz. And uh, Kuntz had um, um, uh, an, an incident where he received a call. Uh, now, his phone number was uh, unlisted, so it, would, it couldn't have been a prank call addressed uh, directed at him, but he received a call from someone who sounded very much like his mother, warning him to be careful. That was all she said. She said it three times, hung up. Uh, and um, then, long story short, he was involved in an altercation, went to visit his father at an old folks' home. His father was suffering from dementia, was walking around the old folks' home with a knife, and uh, Dean got the knife away from him, walked out of his father's room. There were the police uh, with their guns drawn, pointed at him, telling him to drop the knife. And he said, it's not me you want. This is my father's, and I just got it away from him. But he, he said that was one of the worst moments of his life. And then he immediately thought back to that phone call that he had had maybe an hour earlier from a woman uh, who sounded like his mother uh, who had died two decades earlier. So there you go. It, it's more common than than people think. Um, I want to talk to you about you're out there on the West Coast, and I think you're... Um, uh, you've just recently returned, like today, you were in the Mojave Desert, and uh, you visited uh, some place. You've been there before. It's called the Integratron. It was uh, built by George Van Tassel, who was an alleged UFO contactee. Uh, when when did this happen? He built this in the 1950s, something like that, the 60s? Uh, he, he got the ideas for it from extraterrestrials in the 1950s. He was one of the uh, what we would call the Space Brother contactees. Uh, post-World War II, and uh, he was, um, uh, he moved his family in, into a subterranean uh, chamber at a place called Giant Rock, which is one of the world's largest freestanding boulders, and began having uh, contact with aliens, and uh, they would come and visit him in their spacecraft. He started having conferences. Thousands of people would attend, and one night, he was awakened by aliens who who landed near his um, home there at Giant Rock. They said they were from Venus, and they gave him plans for what they said was a time travel slash cellular rejuvenation machine, uh, something that would extend human life by 20 to 50 years and also could be used for time travel. And uh, he was a smart guy. He was uh, an engineer. He worked for uh, Howard Hughes. He worked for, um, I think it was uh, Martin Marietta. Um, and uh, he, he was a very bright man. And uh, so he worked on this for a long time and finally constructed this, um, this structure that looks like a small observatory. It's domed. There isn't a single nail in it. Uh, it's acoustically perfect, and um, just before it was ready to go online, so to speak, 
um, and he was traveling around uh, America doing a lot of lecturing. Uh, he mysteriously died, uh, supposedly of a heart attack, while he was on tour. And immediately after his death, federal agents came to his home in Giant Rock. They took all of his papers, his equipment, um, and no one's ever seen it again. Hmm. So whatever time travel aspects the Integratron had uh, have been lost, and exactly how it was supposed to rejuvenate bodies at the cellular level, nobody really knows. But you've but been there. You've not. been there a couple times, and you were there today. In fact, I was there today. Yes, I've been there about a half a dozen times now, and um, it's uh, um, it's used for healing. Um, you go and you take a sound bath there. And the sound bath is provided by crystal bowls. Someone plays uh, this, a full set of crystal bowls to activate the entire chakra system. And the idea is that the sound waves of this pure energy in this acoustically perfect chamber uh, benefit uh, you physically and also spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, and mentally. And it is a profound experience. I did have an out-of-body experience there. Um, and um, I've had uh, a lot of visions. Um, things seem to be clarified there. Like hmm. if uh, you feel like you're blocked or you're struggling with something, uh, you come out of it feeling very clarified. And uh, that's why every time we come out here to the desert, I always go there because I believe it is important to be washed by this sound. Tell me about your out-of-body experience there. Um, th this happened the first time I did the Integratron, and um, while I was, uh, you, you lay down on kind of a futon uh, in this chamber, and um, you can close your eyes or keep them open, and uh, I had my eyes closed, and my husband was next to me, and uh, I tried uh, doing uh, directed meditations or just letting the sound go through me, and I think that's the best. And so I was just letting the sound go through me and being carried by the sound, and uh, I felt myself kind of literally going out into space, out into the cosmos. And uh, I didn't open my eyes. Um, it was difficult for me to tell where... Um, whether I was like just having a, a, a visionary projection or I was literally projected out, but my husband had his eyes open and he said that um, I started to get up. Now, I did not. I was prone the entire time and he saw apparently a double of me get up out of my body. Um, so that was evidence to me that I literally had an out-of-body projection while I was out sort of caterwauling among the stars. <laughs> caterwauling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is the Integratron, who is it run by? Is it run by the Van Tassel family or is it, part, is it, is it within Joshua National Park? It's very near to uh, Joshua Tree National Park. It's in a tiny little place called Landers. It's about 20 minutes from the park per se. And it's owned by three sisters now, and they had connections to the family. And in fact, their connections to the Integratron go back about 30 or so years. And they purchased it from family members 
who didn't want to keep it anymore. It was too much of a financial burden for them. And they took it over uh, because they wanted it preserved. They did not want to see it go to, to ruin. And so they've not only kept it going, but now it's thriving because um, uh, people come from all over the world to have the Integratron experience. And uh, they have film crews coming there all the time. They have one coming next week. Um, they're, they're very gracious to researchers, and um, they have uh, a lot of papers there, and um, I'm able to go and do some research there myself. I'm very fascinated by uh, this structure and, and by the life of George Van Tassel and his experiences. Well, tell me a little bit more about Van Tassel. Do you think he was on the up and up? Do you, do you think he was visited by people from Venus? I do. Uh, his his uh, personal story uh, to some uh, seems very outlandish. And when you uh, take into consideration uh, some of the other stories from the Space Brother days that were a little more fantastic, um, I could see how people might question it. But uh, Van Tassel was a solid guy, and uh, he had a scientific engineering background. He certainly had an interest in these things. And uh, he became interested in, in giant rock um, because he, uh, he he met the man who lived there. There was a, a fellow named uh, Frank, and I've forgotten Frank's last name, um, who was kind of a hermit. And he hollowed out uh, this subterranean chapter underneath this boulder and uh, turned it into his home. And uh, Van Tassel became acquainted with him because his car needed repair. Uh, and, um, this fellow, uh, he wound up being, Frank wound up being accused of being, um, a spy during World War II, uh, apparently had a, a German background, and, um, federal agents came to raid him. He stored dynamite, uh, there, and there was an explosion. Who knows how that happened, and Frank was killed. And, uh, after, um, after that, then Van Tassel, that's when he moved his family, and he started having these experiences out there in the desert. Well, the Joshua Tree area uh, is renowned for um, craft in the sky, sightings, uh, contact with mysterious beings of all kinds. It has quite a history to it. Well, that's for sure, hence the, uh, the contact in the desert uh, big conference there every year. Rosemary, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm out of time. We have to revisit the Integratron on another occasion. Always a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thank you. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. All right. Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.